Hello, friends, and welcome to Northern Static, the show where Canadian composers tell us about the state of their art. I'm bassist and composer Pete Johnston, coming to you from the north side of the tracks. On this show, I talk to composers from a range of musical scenes to find out how they make their music, why it sounds the way it does, and most importantly, what they think we should be listening for when we hear it. In this episode, I talk to composer and drummer Nick Frazier. Nick is one of the busiest drummers in the country and seems to be in at least half of the jazz bands in Toronto. But today we're going to talk about his own projects as a leader, for which he writes compelling and engaging tunes. Chat with Nick Frazier, coming up next on Northern Static. Welcome to episode 9 of the show. The concept for the show is simple. I sit down and talk with composers about their creative processes, and they play some compositions of their choice as examples of what they do. Think of it as a group listening session where the creator of the music is there to guide us through how and why they make the music they do. Today, it is Nick Frazier's turn on the other side of the table. Nick is a virtuosic drummer whose stylistic flexibility is paired with a questing imagination. The Toronto jazz scene is historically pretty clearly divided between players concerned with mining the rich traditions of jazz and those interested in bringing new elements to the music. There are very few musicians who move back and forth between the traditional and left-field jazz scenes in the city, and Nick Frazier is one of those rare birds. Equally comfortable playing jazz standards and totally free improvising, Nick has carved out an enviable career playing alongside the most successful and creative musicians in town. My experience of going out to hear jazz and improvise music when I first moved to Toronto in 2001 has I'm sure been replicated by countless other curious listeners who've come to the city since then. It does not take long to encounter Nick Frazier, and once you do, you want to hear more. A very short list of bands in which you can hear Nick includes Peripheral Vision, Ugly Beauties, the Lena Alamano Four, Titanium Riot, the Brody West Quintet, Eucalyptus, the Ryan Driver Sextet, and the Rob Clutton Trio. And in the interest of transparency, Nick also plays in my band, See Through Four, with former and future guests on the podcast, Karen Ng and Marilyn Lerner. These are just the bands I know of on the left field side of things. There's surely just as many mainstream jazz bands out there that count Nick as a member. A few minutes on the internet will reveal an astonishing amount of music of which Nick has been a part. But today we're going to talk about Nick's own music, for he has been composing for and leading his own bands for over two decades. On a personal note, hearing Nick's band Drumheller early in my time in Toronto was profound and formative for me as a composer and improviser. Composed of five of the most distinctive and idiosyncratic players and composers in town, Rob Clutton on bass, Brody West on saxophone, Doug Tielli on trombone, and Eric Cheneau on guitar, Drumheller's music freely mixed jazz with folk, rock, and experimental improvised music in such a way that allowed me to see a place for myself in the Toronto music scene. Before hearing them, I found myself despairing as I belatedly realized that I didn't have the discipline or drive to acquire the necessary prowess on my instrument to compete in the mainstream jazz scene. Drumheller showed me that there was a whole other world of creative, collaborative music making available in my newly chosen city. I found the kind of hope, joy, and sense of community in their music that keeps me going to this day. I can't thank Nick, Rob, Brody, Doug, and Eric enough for their life-affirming music. Given all that, it was a great privilege to get to ask Nick some questions about his music and to listen to some of his recent compositions with him. To get into it as we like to do here on Northern Static, we'll start the show with a little bit of Nick's music and then get into our discussion. Of course, I can't resist kicking things off with some drumheller. So get ready for some hope and joy. Here's Nick's piece, Sketch 14, from their 2009 album, Glint. 
presenter of Nick Fraser Presents. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Pete. Glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so I've seen you play mm-hmm. a million times mm-hmm. here in Toronto. Had the great pleasure as long as I've lived here. You've been doing your thing. And uh, I always make a point to come out in here as much as I can. And in that time, you've seen you play as a side person in all kinds of things, but also leading quite a few quite a few groups mm-hmm. over the years, including Drumheller, of which I loved your tunes in that band. So I'm curious, when did you start composing, and who were your early inspirations and influences? Early. I'm not sure when I started composing. Um, I always find it a problem when we're talking about improvising, performing, composing. Those things are not inseparable, and I don't even consider myself a composer outside of the context of performing. I mean, the only reason I write music is so that I can play it with people. I don't write music for other people to play generally. But that's a standard mode of performance practice in the, yes. in, in, in the jazz world. To me, that is composition, it's composition as, as, as yeah. valid as anything else. Yes, but so so when I, when you, I mean, I remember I played in a heavy metal band when I started. I played in my brother's punk band and I would mess around on the guitar and write some songs for that and then I went to an arts high school and I learned, you know, better how to read music and I'd have these composition or ear training assignments and I would write stuff and come up with melodies and and things to play but they were always highly connected to to my experience as a performer as my and my practice as a performer. So that makes sense. So things that you wanted to play. Yeah. Yeah, so it's hard for me to think about influences because, I mean, I guess, you know, my brother and the other guys that were playing in the metal band that I was in in grade 8 and uh, and uh, Metallica. <laughs> Later on, uh, Ornette Coleman, Paul Motion. <laughs> seems like what I'm what I'm hearing is that because I have a similar thing I grew up playing rock music mm-hmm. and um, that is what you did as a rock musician yeah the rock musicians I liked wrote their own music yeah they all did and certainly that always felt like that's just what you did as a musician because mm-hmm. that's everybody I admired that's what they did and in in the world of rock and if you grew up listening and playing rock that seems to be a thing you just inherit yeah as, yeah. as, as not necessarily a specific influence but like a, a world yeah a, a world viewer a, a uh, well a practice that's yeah and then the jazz musicians you just listed are all also composers mm-hmm and I mean I mean is there a major jazz musician who isn't 
I mean, I just think, you know, Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, Duke Ellington, John Coltrane, and Miles <laughs> Davis. He, the, his relationship <laughs> with composition is uh, he's credited fraught, with a lot of composition. Fraught. Um, I feel like if you're not a composer, I mean, not, I'm not saying someone like Johnny Griffin didn't write his own tunes. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did, but it's not what he is remembered as, or mm-hmm. you know. Right, Stan Getz. Yeah, Stan Getz. Well, yeah, Stan Getz. Probably, that's probably the best example, They're like of someone who's just really not remembered as a composer. Mm-hmm. So but and his end, so his his influence is necessarily going to be less. It's going to wane because people are going to still be playing Monk tunes and Wayne Shorter tunes and Mingus tunes and da 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 da. da. But mm-hmm. Stan Getz is is just always going to be Stan Getz. But it seems like Chet as Baker, a... you know, similar. But it's meaningful, like who we gravitate towards as as the music that really excites us out mm-hmm. of that, out of that jazz yeah. world. And if you're well, if you're I, talking Monk and Ornette Coleman, then then you're caring about orig, original tunes yes. versus standards records, for example. Yes. Yeah. Although I also really dug Keith Jarrett and standard jazz and learning standard tunes, and and I kind of identify somewhat with like Keith used to say in these interviews he'd talk about how and and Gary Peacock talked about this as well where th- they started the standards trio because they didn't want to own the music they didn't want to well just that they didn't want to own the music and i do feel like there's something nice about playing whether it's free improvisation or standard repertoire Playing something where there's no kind of ideal version, where there's no mm. ideal like vernacular or, or, music. Yeah, and and uh, I find it playing my own music, something else happens. Like you know, I just I finished a tour one time with the quartet with Andrew and Rob and and Tony, and I got back to Toronto, and the first gig I had was with uh, Lena's Titanium Riot. And I just found myself thinking, like, why can't I play this way, the way I play with Titanium Riot? Why can't I play that way with my with my own band? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it has to do with the presence of my compositions <laughs> and with the compositions themselves, where I have some idea of how they're supposed to come come off, or you know, I mean, other if I didn't have an idea of how they're supposed to come off, I wouldn't have written them, right? Mm-hmm. So, but they're kind of so they're. They're also a problem, in addition to being something I am proud of and, uh, <laughs> you know, right. something I want to continue doing. They're, they're also some kind of, there's something there, some kind of difference. Yeah, is it around, it's not the right word, but caring about them too much or something? Yeah, or, or something the pre- like preciousness that. preciousness to wanting it to be as good as possible? Yeah. Because it's really reflecting on... Yeah, and I've also, I've often thought about, you know, jazz musicians will say, oh man, they should leave the mistakes on the record. You know, oh, that's the best when you can, you know, you know, let something be rough. And but almost none of them mean it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do they mean? Well, it's just a kind of it's a cliche. I mean, something that Miles Davis said, and it's something that you know that that jazz musicians used to do a lot more. I mean, mm-hmm. tons of recordings where things speed up and slow down, and the head is rough, and the and the time gets turned around, and soloist gets lost, and Ah, where was I going with that? I mean, you know, when you did the podcast with Lena, we were joking about it before we turned on the mics. 
talking about how Lena would just say, well, I just brought nothing. I just wrote this thing that's just a tiny little nothing. there's hardly anything there but there's still what's there is rich in some way there's just some very subtle rhythmic things like there's there's just and there's just two sections there's hardly anything there and then and this is what we did with it and it, and and i mean i kind of appreciate you know i mean i think it's hilarious because it's very far from the truth you know what when you're writing for improvisers there's a lot that the improvisers have to bring to the table and that's why casting is so important and so you know so a lot of the stuff that i write these days is themes that are going to be used in free improvisation where free improvisation also almost like the template is free improvisation but then the the themes can be used to guide that yeah i mean i've often thought about it as if you're going to write anything you know you want to maybe write something because you want the improvisation to have a certain character that's different from mm -hmm. the tune you just played or the tune mm -hmm. you're about to play mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and maybe to facilitate some other things happening yeah although or, or else you, why bother i'll know? tell you what the, if you look up my last record on spotify there's like a 30 second sample but they drop from the middle of each tune i'm like oh my god it all just fucking sounds the same right <laughs> <laughs> right you know some of them are a little faster some a little slower some a little denser some a little less some have soprano sax. Yeah, but that's that's not you know that that's funny, but it's not fair really, right? Because no, because sure. the, the thirty seconds yeah. of any jazz record is gonna yes. sound the same, like it needs to unfold yes. over time. That's true. But I, I mean, I guess I guess I'm sort of projecting intention there for you. That's my intention in in composing, even little snippets of things. It's just so different things will happen. Yeah, in, it's also in improvising. It's like having a. Like so, I've often said that I really appreciate free improvised music because you can have the whole range. You have the range of entire range of dynamics in your instrument, the entire range, the spectrum from like tonality to atonality, a huge spectrum of texture, a huge spectrum of uh, you know rhythm, uh, timbre, timbre. Uh, yeah, you just basically have have a lot of the spectrum of of music available to you, or you know whatever's available with that given group of musicians, whatever. But if you bring some composing into it, hopefully not too much so that you don't end up losing that that spectrum, for me, that's what I'm saying. I mean, for me, I don't want to bring too much so, because if I, I feel like if I bring too much, then I get, I lose that spectrum. But, but it is nice to have additionally a bit of a kind of spectrum of intention or a spectrum of musical action whether it means that sometimes somebody plays something right together. Like I remember Glenda, my wife, she came out to hear, she had a class on Tuesdays. She would go come here, drum heller, like one Tuesday, and then the next Tuesday would be peripheral vision and uh, at the Transact. And then she said, yeah, like with peripheral vision, sometimes you guys play something and it's like right together. 
with Drumheller, that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's true. Like we would deliberately drop or rearrange things where we had unison horn lines or, I mean, we, there were some, there were some, but it was never like, bow, you know, mm -hmm. never like the festival ending type. You know. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, every band kind of creates its own culture around things that need to happen and what's like okay and not okay. And in my groups where often these days there's like one or zero rehearsals and then we just play. Like that spec that that has to be quite a large area of what's okay. Right. And you have to really count on the instincts of the musicians involved to to make it work and be good. And that's very different than something that actually does have to be rehearsed and actually does have to be played accurately in a certain way and in a certain tempo range and you know and, mm -hmm. and I mean I think about that a lot because I'm working with dancer been working with dancers a bunch for the last year or so and in a regular jazz show if you do something eight times instead of four times and then you move on to the next section it's almost a non-event you know mm -hmm. but in the dance show it would be a disastrous event right <laughs> um, it has to be the same yeah the timing is key maybe the maybe the notes can be different or the, yeah. What role does your instrument play in your composing process? Like you're, you're, uh, you're a drummer, obviously. Um, like, do you write music on the drums no. or think about it in a no. particular way? No. <laughs> Mostly I write melodies or little, little things to be played on other instruments while I improvise. So are you composing those on piano or yeah, guitar? Yeah, piano or? or sometimes I'll, sometimes I have this, thing where I will take an existing piece of music and turn it upside down. And then I write it and put it into finale. And then I have some some cells and some weird things that I can work with and compose with, if that makes sense. Sure. Because sometimes I find that the the main impediment for me to actually writing music is just material and feeling like I need to be inspired and I need to just all you know if I could only just hear a great melody in my head then then I'd be able to work with it mm -hmm. and that almost never happens so then I would just never write so I would start just using almost random processes to generate material to help me hear so once I'm working on something then I can hear melodies I can hear how it might develop I can hear how I might cut and paste and and add and omit and whatever so it's not just turning music upside down. There were other ones. I wrote a piece based on my phone number. I wrote a piece based on a rhythm study from a book called Rhythmic Training. So you give yourself a little st starter culture. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, because I work the same way. I don't, I don't hear anything <laughs> in my head. And I generate it by various means. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then edit that. Right. So for me, most of my process is actually editing. Right. More than coming up with well, stuff. I should, yeah, I should find out what your processes are for material generation. That's, well, <laughs> there's some, yeah, anyway, there's some stuff in there. Like I will like play something backwards mm -hmm. or say I'm going to write this melody and then on the head out it's going to be backwards. Just change it a little bit so it sounds better because mm -hmm. often it's wonky. Often, yeah. But it gives you something, you know, you, it gives you something to 
to chew on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Big theme of the show and what I really want to talk to everybody about is your basic composing process. Just real simple, dumb stuff like, you know, when do you compose? When do you make time to do it? What are the, mm. you know, whatever, any rituals or practices that you engage in to, to generate the stuff that you do? Um, I don't have any rituals. Sometimes I have a gig. <laughs> and then I think, I'd like to have some new music ready for that gig. And then I'll try to write something. I mean, beyond beyond the stuff we just talked about, about like material generation, I don't have a lot. I certainly don't have a lot of rituals. I cer- cer- will sometimes go months without composing something and then... All of a sudden, I I write two or three little things. Sometimes with people in mind or instrumentation in mind. Sometimes not. So is it composing practice primarily sort of project based? Like you've got a project that needs some music, or yeah, yeah. It. I mean, the three main projects that I've been writing for the last few years have been the quartet with Andrew Downing and Rob Clutton and Tony Malaby and a trio with Chris Davis and Tony Malaby, and also the dance shows that I've been doing in the last couple of years. And that's been, again, a very different different writing process. I mean, sometimes the material is literally the same, same material that I play with the quartet, but the way we treat it with the, with the dance show is very different. Now, you mentioned you use finale. Like, um, do things start out for you, like, Pencil, paper, or, or sometimes, recording, or sometimes, yeah, I will play something on piano and write it down. But then, usually, pretty quickly, I'm gonna put it into finale because I know I'm gonna have to do that any anyway. So if I do a bunch of writing on, like I usually try to put it on the computer quickly, because if I finish something, pen and paper, then I'm just gonna have to enter the whole thing into finale rather than mm-hmm. edit entering the first theme and then or the first little bit and then and then doing the editing and whatever. Yeah. And for the drum heller or the quartet, like what kind of like you mentioned melodies there, like what, what kind of information are you let's say drum heller for example, like what, what, what were you giving the players in the bands? Just melodies. I mean the the when I was playing with drum heller my tunes were simpler and um, well just that simpler. Shorter, more easily communicable. I always kind of thought of them as as relief, like because in Drumheller there were five composers and Doug is like uh, very specific ideas about and and very like I would actually put Rob and Brody and Doug in this category of like very specific ideas that required rehearsal and sometimes extended you know, long form compositions. Um, they tended to require a fair bit of rehearsal time. And I always thought Eric's and my compositions generally required less. And the when when I had a tune for Drumheller that that didn't seem to work right away, I usually I would just abandon it because I was like, well we already you know, geez, we have to rehearse Brody's tune, so that's that's gonna take forever. (laughs) 
would you chart the change then between if you said they're simpler than, than now, like what, what the tunes you're doing now, what's different or what has generated that, that change for you? Well, when I started the quartet, it was a lot of, it was tunes that hadn't really worked with Drumheller. So maybe, but they did work with the quartet. So maybe I thought maybe that opened the door for me. Like, oh yeah, I can write a little bit more. I can ask for a little bit more. Ugly Beauties is another one where, you know, we all write. And again, straddling that, how specific do we want each thing to be? And how open do we want it? Do we want it to be? It's also, it's not, it's not, it hasn't gone from like, from zero to 60, you know? I mean, it's, it's still stuff that is pretty sketchy. Like, we're going to play this little thing, then we're going to improvise for a long time, and then we're going to play this other little thing, and then... Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not like all of a sudden I'm writing, uh, Messian. So it's not what I'm hearing is it sounds like you're wanting to write stuff that can get off the ground fairly quickly. Yeah. I mean, that's as a matter of necessity as much as anything, but also I feel Are you like saying it's difficult to get bands together to rehearse. Yes. Oh. <laughs> well, especially when the saxophone player lives in a different city and, uh, so it's pragmatic. It's pragmatic. But also, I also feel like, I don't know. I mean, I don't really mind rehearsing. I like getting music together. But I I definitely notice there's a, you know, if, if you, if I don't quite know how to put it, but depends on the music, depending on the musician, they, often people don't really like rehearsing. And I know there are a certain generation and a certain way of playing where, almost um like it's a point of pride to get it something like that yeah. something like that and and also like they know that that the music's really going to happen after the head is finished <laughs> and not when and so how tight the head is it's not really the there seems to be an understanding that like the music's gonna going to succeed or fail on the basis of like how we play on it not not how we mm. execute the compositions. Yeah, I've come to understand myself as fundamentally a rock musician. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, the experience of playing rock music, which I don't get to do much anymore, but I really What's wish stopping I wish you, Pete? What is stopping you? Being old, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, but it's just, you rehearsed like yeah. crazy. Yeah. And, and, and I, so I... I still love rehearsing because mm -hmm. of, because of that. And, you know, sometimes it's too much. We're like, Oh my goodness, come on. Mm -hmm, and we mm -hmm. have this together. But, but I think that's, you know, my earlier <laughs> comment about uh, writing your own music as being just nested in what rock and roll is mm -hmm. it, like also rehearsing it is a, is a big part of that too. Yeah. You because know, like you, I, you I, would, I grew up wanting to, you know, be in a rush cover band basically. And mm -hmm. that fully shaped my understanding of what it meant to be a musician. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, all the bands that I was in in high school and that, I mean, we would just rehearse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we never had any gigs, really. <laughs> I mean, maybe we had the odd gig, but yeah. uh, um, you can't go home again, Pete. No, I tried. Um, so you, you've had a lot of people who you play with very regularly. I, I remember noting recent 
show I saw you play where you said that Rob Clutton has been the bass player on every every record that you've released that had a bass player on which every, you were the leader. <laughs> every record of mine that has a bass player, the bass player is Rob Clutton. Yes. Yes. So so you've got a, you know, a, a, a But decent. he's so fired. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> He was cool until you noticed yeah. that. And then yeah. <laughs> so I was like, man, damn, I need a bass player. So clearly you've got a network of collaborators. What role does collaboration play in, in how you think about your composing? Well, um, I don't know. That's a tough one. I mean, other than sort of the obvious of like, I like Rob, I like Andrew, I like Ryan Driver, I like... Almost said I liked Eric Chanel, but I still like <laughs> Eric Chanel. <laughs> uh, I like Brody, uh, uh, Doug, but it, 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 I don't really say, like, I've never really written with Lena in mind, but because we've played together so much, it makes a lot of sense. And I mean, mm -hmm. she plays on a few tunes in, in, on my new record and, and it, it makes total sense. It's not, it doesn't, um. I didn't have to think about the music differently, you know, because Lena was there. When when we're thinking about networks of players, it's not just people that you're writing music for, it's other people mm -hmm. that you play music. Yeah. That's Wait. what I mean when yeah. I say that it's inseparable, the the, mm -hmm. the improvising, the composing, the practicing, the, the you know, who knows what's what's But maybe, what, yeah, you know, where. do you feel like the, the composing is shaped in some way by who's going to play it? Because as you mentioned, like the music, you had some tune, early repertoire for the quartet mm -hmm. with stuff that didn't really work in mm -hmm. in another band. Well, uh, hmm. I mean, early on, the reason I asked Malaby to play was because I could hear it. I could hear his sound playing those melodies. And then I thought, oh, what? You know, he was going to be in town, and we, I got in touch with him, we, you know. Um, and so, and we had no rehearsal. The first, the first record, Towns and Villages. I think I got together with Andrew and Rob. We had no rehearsal with Tony, so I knew that it had to be stuff that was communicable, like, you mm -hmm. know, like that. Not stuff that required a lot of rehearsal or explanation, because then we're just wasting studio time, you know. And I mentioned that to someone, and they said, "Well, that's part of composing, <laughs> you know, knowing what what the situation is that you're." going to compose for. I mean, since then, we've been able to rehearse a little bit more and, and make some slightly more complicated things happen. Correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the point of what, the, what you're working on is to generate compelling improvisations? Yes. Hmm. I mean, sure, that's the idea. And or, I mean, again, I'm going to go, I'm going back to the insep inseparability. Like, it's, it's, uh, the compositions can be compelling too. I I would love that, <laughs> and I like uh, I like having things that are open enough that they can go a lot of different ways. That they there's not one way that they should be played or have to be played or want to be played. Well, within that, what how do you see the role of the listener in a performance or a recording that you're doing? What sorry what? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you mean the average listener? Well, <laughs> I I don't know. I, I don't a know. Middle Pete. class listener. <laughs> you know, you, got, I, um, you, you know those. You know those ones. Ordinary folks. Um, I don't know, Pete. Uh, you know, Braxton uses this term called the friendly experiencer, 
And I, I like that. I like the idea that um, people, the, the people who are going to get, potentially, the people who are going to get the most out of any music are the people who sit there and listen to it with an open mind and a, and a willingness to, I was going to say appreciate it, but it's not, it's not appreciation. I mean, it's just, it's just listening. It's, it's really, you just have to listen. <laughs> it's, and I mean, I, you know, like we, you're not on social media, which is really admirable. That's why no one listens to my podcast. Yeah. Cause no one knows about it. Perfect. But, but, uh, you know, we're in a world where people are often unwilling, and myself included, unwilling. You know, I'll see a video and uh, of some somebody's music, and presumably um, invested a lot of time and energy in that music. And maybe, and if I see that the video is like over four minutes, sometimes I go, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not even gonna turn the sound on. I'm not gonna click on that." And that's me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So we, you know, musicians who are involved in this realm of work, or maybe just any musicians, I don't know. But we can offer an experience. But people have to be willing to to listen and to sit and and to maybe not have the experience, you know, because mm-hmm. I don't have the experience. I don't have the experience every time. I'm getting better at it, but. It's it's not really like a I can't just turn it on and and like all of a sudden I'm I'm transporting I'm transported, you know. So I mean we can offer people that experience if they are open to it. Well, I'm feeling very open to it. So maybe you can <laughs> offer me that experience right now. All right. And we can listen to one of your pieces. Sounds good. Because I understand gonna... you have a you have a new record coming out. It's true. It's or true. who knows when this show will actually emerge. So it, it might be out. The record might be out. <sighs> yeah, it might be out. It might be out. Don't set your clocks to this show. <laughs> but you have a new uh, you have a new record and new pieces and did you brought a couple along to play? I did. All right. What would you like to listen to first? Let's go with Zoning. It's the title track my new record on Astral Spirits. That's the name of the label? Yeah, from Texas. Okay. Here we go. This is Zoning. Thank you. 
that was zoning. What a thing. What can you tell us about it? Uh, it's just nothing. It's just <laughs> nothing. There's nothing there. Um, it's two melodies, or well, two themes. Uh, it starts out with an improvised duo between t two tenor saxes, Ingrid Lobrock and Tony Malby, and they play... I can hear them refer to it very abstractly for the first minute, refer to the theme. But that's probably only because I wrote it. It's Is there one theme? That no, it's two themes, one for each of them. Ah. Like it's a, it's a whatever, contrapuntal, interlocking, uh, what do you call that? Hocket. Yeah. I don't know if I think of it as a hocket because it's not, it's not going, you know, it's not, uh, it's not locked in time like that, but it's one saxophone playing one melody and the other saxophone playing another melody. And um, then they start referring to it more explicitly at about a minute, about a minute in. Then they're playing the, you know, they're playing the material more explicitly and then Lena brings in the second theme over them. They're still playing the first first theme Hockett thing. And uh, Chris, pianist, Chris, great pianist Chris Davis, she enters, it's almost like the first thing she does is start her solo. So she's expanding on the material that the other people have played. And then there's a drum, drum and piano duo and uh, I mean, we just listened to it just now, and I'm I'm just so uh, I was gonna say shocked, but impressed, impressed at how. I mean, all the all those people are very practiced at making those kinds of quick musical decisions and really making something out of all kidding aside, something that where there's not a lot of material. Um, and so even like the, the there's a part where where Chris starts this amazing left hand kind of repeated thing and and that was all I didn't decide any of that that was all Chris and then we played the the second part is kind of like a an an accelerated or a, a cannon with an accelerando so like everybody in the band is going you know, accelerating and then and then starting the accelerando again, each at their own rate. Uh, that's really fun. And Ingrid, it's amazing. I mean, you can almost barely hear it because everyone else is freaking out but but even when other people are playing very densely she's very committed to the concept and she's occasionally even when there's a lot of chaos around her she's go, she's going beep bop 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 but anyway, and so she's holding it down. She's holding it down. <laughs> yeah, literally. Hmm. Um, and uh, you know, then we we sort of intersperse that phrase with improvising, so it doesn't end up. I, I'm not sure if the effect, the effect of the kind of multiple speed overlapping canon with 
people accelerating at their own, each person accelerating at their own rate, and then slowing, and then starting over. I'm not sure if that effect is totally there in a in a very solid or like or clear way. But I, again, going back to the things we talked about, to me that doesn't matter. What matters is that it's a it's an effective performance or like a, a we got somewhere could spend a lot of time mapping out you know when this person is this far ahead in the acceleration then let's try it then you you can enter and then like mapping out a, a round mm-hmm. or a cannon but i'm not that interested in that and also it's, I, so it's, it's about it's, getting at the overall effect yeah it's been unsuccessful like there's another tune of mine with that i used to play with bicycle or with drumheller called bicycle and with Bicycle, the first version I wrote, it had, it, it's almost the same concept uh, as it's like a, you know, it's one line of music and everybody reads it and accelerates, but starting at a different place and at their own rate. And I wrote kind of a, I wrote, I wrote the first line and then I wrote like a kind of end game, like where you might want to end up. So Bicycle goes like, uh, Etc. And then I wrote something that was kind of like you know, a kind of target for the end of the accelerando. But it looks like shit. It looks super complicated rhythmically. And then everyone, instead of just where I could just communicate that to you. Like I just did, that's much more clear and less labor intensive than writing out. Yeah, and expecting someone to read it. Yeah, yeah. Because then the whole performance is just about am I playing this rhythm right? And is this what Nick wants? And I don't, I don't care about that. Or I mean, I don't want, certainly don't want that to be. You don't want the dominant experience of the musicians to. To be no. conscious about, and I mean, there's a certain you know when I went to the Banff Center in um, in uh, 1999, a lot of people were writing, and a lot of people are still writing a lot of music with odd meters and complicated stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and uh, I find that the the vocal quality of the music can get lost for one. And the kind of intuitive quality of the music can get lost when it, and also it's just, it's the sound of the sound of men counting, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I don't like music that sounds like that. So I, even if I like some of the rhythmic concepts or the or the, I just want I want the effect of the music to be like, what's that, you know? Not oh, I could figure that out what I could figure out what that is if I just. Mm-hmm. Counted out. And counted it, you know. Get the slide rule out. Yeah, it's a good lesson. <laughs> but it sounded like in that in that in that piece that there uh, were specific groupings of things. Was that something like had you mapped out, for example, that the middle part would be a drum piano? We may do it. I think we may have. And it starts. You know, you you don't come in for a couple of minutes, mm-hmm. and then everybody's mm-hmm. in at the end. Like that's mm-hmm. that was something that was part of it. I think so. But it was a, at least a year, it might have been two years ago even. I, 
I know it's my new record, but I can't remember these kinds of things. So. I can't be expected to remember that. No, well, I mean, but yeah, what I'm more I curious bet, about I, is if I, you play that piece again, is it would, would like would it maintain those? I would bet those... in performance it would be more open. Mm -hmm. So that instead of being specifically a drum, I mean, the whole performance is what, five minutes, six minutes? So were to play it on a gig, there's a good chance that it would last 20 minutes. And sure. Or, or it could. Or or go into something else and come back to it and, and you know, the the improv section wouldn't be quite so mapped, mm -hmm. is my sense. But I don't know. Yeah, so that, I guess, I guess that particular arrangement of it is not, I bet it's not you, baked into the composition. No. Okay. I probably came point. up with it in the studio. Yeah. Because, well, I know I did because we had never played with Ingrid or Lena. So... Like that first thing that's a duo, a saxophone duo, originally, like if we were playing it as a trio, that would be a piano part. Right. And she would play right hand, left hand. So. Right. So some reorchestrating. There would be reorchestrating. And then, of course, because she would be occupied in the, in the part that Lena played, Tony would play that. So then we're just moving into trio improvisation, most likely. We're not going to say like, Oh, then it's going to be piano because we've already heard a lot of piano. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Great. Well, that's zoning. Um, do you have a another one? Which one did I say that I uh, uh, would play? Wells Tower. Wells Tower. Okay. Um, so let's have a listen to Wells Tower. And and my memory of listening, of listening to it in advance that there seems to be more more material, more precomposed material in this in this number. But it's three right? pages. Three pages. <laughs> well, zoning was two pages. Right. So, so there's one page more. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, let's uh, let's hear it. This is Wells Tower.
That's Wells Tower. It's a different, different kind of thing happening there. The composed material is much more obvious mm -hmm. um, and uh, rhythmic and time-based in a way and, and seems to persist throughout the piece um, Maybe. In, in a clear way. Maybe. Maybe not. Well, I, I mean, I don't know about in the solo. In the solos, it might get a little, little abstract. I, don't, I mean, one of the things about it is that there's a, a vamp, a repetitive rhythmic figure that's in the piano. But, but I don't know. Um, I went to a Mark Elias uh, workshop w one year. And um, Jordy Haley, our friend Jordy Haley, asked Mark Elias about, uh, he said uh, something about, a question about the prevalence of the vamp in this music. And... Basically, Mark Mark Elias was like, "It's it's a problem," <laughs> and uh, I guess I agree that it's a problem. <laughs> but but because you know, I mean, uh, there was this Twitter account. I don't have I don't have Twitter, but I occasionally will look some people on Twitter that I think are funny. Um, one of them was called Jazz is the Worst. Mm. This Twitter account called Jazz is the Worst. Have you? Mm -hmm. you know, I know about it. Yeah. So one of the tweets from Jazz is the Worst was, uh, 
drummers tend to jazz drummers tend to write avant-garde music because their knowledge of harmony is so limited. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I read that and I was like, wow, busted. I mean, you know, so busted. And not just me, but you know, everyone. Because what else have you got, really? <laughs> what else, you know? Uh, you know, when, when, again, when, I mean, uh, it's true. I, you know, I don't have a large knowledge of harmony. And so I'm, I'm, I'm necessarily dealing with other, uh, parts of music. And so like the thing that I wrote, um, for the blowing section is very simple. It just goes like this. That's it. That's the whole thing. And, but when we improvise on it, we, I, I take care to say that we're not, we're not playing on that vamp. We're using that material. Maybe we settle into that vamp for a second, then we stop, then we keep, then we go back, then we break it apart. Then we, you know, um, another thing is like, again, there's a repetitive rhythmic figure in the in the melody, or in the like in the piano part in the melody that you know, and sometimes I I'll write something just uh, I'll write a vamp and then just separate, kind of use like uh, irregular spaces between its iterations so that it doesn't feel. It feels repetitive, but not predictably repetitive. Right. Um, like you're not certain when the next iteration is going to return. Yeah. Or it's, it's even just increasing the space. Like, I mean, it's it's like, you know, that thing, don't, 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 don't. It's not always going to happen on beat four. It's not always going to happen on, you know, it's, it's, it's going to have some kind of... Um, well, just that irregular spaces between its, you know, repeated material, but with irregular spaces. And there's other tunes. There's other tunes in mind where I've used that same kind of thing. That tune is an example of the of a tune that was undercooked and that we tried with Drumheller and it it didn't work. In fact, we we recorded it one time and and like. Jeff McMurrick was laughing because it sounded so bad. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want the engineer we laughing were, at we you. Were, we were listening back and we were like, yeah, this is terrible. This is not, it's not our direction as a band. Um, yeah. What was in the material for you that obviously you kept it around for a long time? Oh, man. I mean, that's not a good question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that it's not a good question, but... Honestly, sometimes we, you talk about material generation and just sometimes I go like, oh, I, I should really write something for that recording session that I have coming up. Well, why don't I look through my old music and right. see what I've already written and see what I can do with that? Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's uh, valid. <laughs> it's like the, I mean, when I wrote the first dance show that I wrote, for DJD in Calgary that, uh, you know, 
I had access to everything I'd ever written. And I mean, I wrote some new stuff too, but I also... Uh, um, repurposed. Repurposed a bunch of music. And I think it was a really good show. And then, then they asked me to do another show the next year. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I do not, and I no longer have access to everything I've ever written because mm -hmm. I used, a, <laughs> I used a, the best of it, you know. Right. Anyway. Well, I think that's, um, this is something I've thought about, and maybe you have too, in different ways where, you know, whatever, in the 50s and 60s of jazz, like people recorded the same tunes, there's multiple times definitely and that's that's something that doesn't happen very much anymore like i actually yeah. i would tony need, likes to re i would need a brain transplant to do that myself such that i've recently made the decision to act to do that to reorchestrate some of my old to have a and brain transplant <laughs> i would like to have a brain transplant uh if anybody out there in podcast land knows of a skilled surgeon and has very an skilled has an available <laughs> brain um that would be good but no, to re-record re um, some of my older compositions in a different format, mm -hmm. specifically because it hadn't occurred to me as a thing to do until it sort of did. Uh, like, I would never do that. I always write new music for everything. And I thought, well, what, what would it be like to, to sort of do that older model of just repurposing tunes mm -hmm. really on purpose, like uh, yeah. not out of necessity or pragmatism, just why not? Yeah. See, Indeed. I mean, see that's what the thing. That's one thing about this current music world that's great is that really we can do whatever we want because <laughs> no one's buying it and no one's coming to the shows and no one's listening to the records and right. no one cares. No one's making or losing any Are money. Are you saying stakes is low? <laughs> yeah, low stakes. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, I thought... <laughs> thought of it more of just like a personal failure that I couldn't come up with new tunes. But but then I thought, well, why not? Why not see what happens? Anyway, whatever. We'll yeah. see we'll and, see if it works out. I mean look, how many you know, Wayne Shorter wrote he wrote a lot of new tunes, but I mean I saw him probably the last time I saw him, two thousand fifteen or sixteen or something like that. Pretty sure he played Footprints. Right. <laughs> I'm pretty right, sure and Monk, he played... Monk recorded his stuff many, yeah, many times. many times. I mean, in, in fact, he did the bulk of his composing prior to 1950. Yeah, he just played that repertoire. Or, yeah, I think no, I could have the dates wrong. What year were the, were the like, Genius of Modern Music? I think it, they might have been, you know, It's just an ethos, I think, that's, that's, that's changed. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know which which I don't think is a bad thing, but I just I realized my own bias around mm -hmm. doing that and thought, well, well, I mean, but the ethos has changed also in terms of the importance of even playing your own music. The model went from Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, um, to the Beatles. Yeah, which, and I mean, even in the Beatles' own career, that happened. Yeah, of course. You know. The Beatles mm -hmm. were they were a cover band. Were in the old model, and then mm -hmm. yeah, and then the Rolling Stones started writing their own tunes only because the Beatles were making more money than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I hear, yeah. allegedly. Yeah. Uh, Tony plays soprano saxophone on that uh, tune, and I want to give a shout out to Tony's soprano playing, which I think is very special. I think it's so, saxophone player. Tenor playing is pretty good too. <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks for playing playing those tunes. Um, what 
wind things down here a little bit, but uh, what were some of your main artistic challenges when you were starting out, and and how have any of these changed oh, over man. the years for you? Uh, all the things I can think of are not actually artistic challenges. They're just... Life, life challenges? Yeah, or mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, I find it hard to pick up the phone and try to get to, to hustle gigs. I'd love so to being a band leader is, being is, a, band leader is a challenge, is a challenge mm-hmm. for me. But I really like it, and I really would like to do it more. And I would, you know... Uh, so was that shit for you? Like, was was like there's a moment where you decided to kind of want to lead a band? Uh, well, when I first moved to Toronto, I didn't have a gig for about a year. Certainly didn't have a jazz gig. And I was playing in a hip-hop band, and... I eventually just decided that if I didn't, that I needed to start my own band just in order to have a gig, you know. Uh, myself, I know exactly. Give myself something to work toward. And uh, so the first band I had was probably around 97 or 8 with um, uh, Lena, Quinson Natchoff, and Jordan O'Connor. And we just played, you know, we'd play at the Rex and we'd play at the odd other place, you know, places that don't exist anymore. And around that same time, I, I was working a job as a doing film security for film shoots. And difficult to believe, but working a $10 an hour job, I managed to save some money in addition to paying my rent. And I had like three or $4,000 saved up. And I, I thought, well, what am I going to do with this money? And I thought, well... I should make a record. And you know, I had some tunes and I had and I that was that was the that record was Owls in Daylight, which was me and Quinson Natchoff and Justin Haynes. And Justin was living in Ottawa still at the time. We went to Ottawa. We made the record. And I think I I don't I don't know. There was never a moment that where I thought this is what I should do. I think I just did it. Well, the flip side of that is a well, last kind of question here is: Do you have, do you have something um, that that you want to do? Like, given sort of free reign or absent financial constraints, a, a kind of artistic vision that you would like to realize that you haven't been able to yet. Mm. Well, I'd like to tour more as a band leader. Uh, you want to take the music to the people? Yeah. No, I don't know. Uh, I mean, sure, sure. I'd like to do it more, and I'd like to, I'd like to do it more elsewhere. But I'd also like to do it more here. Uh, I have, uh, like, this year at U of T, I have some students that aren't drummers, and I have like a bass player, and a tenor player, and a trumpet player, and they're young and keen, and and so I'm gonna start a little student band. We'll play at the Transact. Maybe the Rex, you know? So I'm excited about that. I think it'll be fun. Won't just be my music, but their stuff too. So hopefully we'll come up with something. It's not going to... I mean, who knows? Who knows? I sort of tried to do that a couple of years ago. I had a band with Josh Cole, Emily Dennison, and Danny Orr. Sort of a rotating saxophone chair. Mm-hmm. Uh and I did some, you know, did some gigs with some other people, like Rebecca Hennessy did one, Anthony Argatov did one, 
Yeah, there was it was a thing, but uh, and and it started when Emily was my student at U of T, and um, uh, I was excited about it, but it didn't. Uh, nothing came of it for mm. whatever reason. Life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be nice to do some work as a band leader where I didn't have to wait. Where it, you know, I didn't have to like invest money in flying Tony to Toronto or, you know, try to get a nice gig so that everybody can get paid and you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> just uh, just a little bit more casual as a band leader. Mm-hmm. That would be nice. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not that it's not that um, it's not that challenging. <laughs> I think I can do it. Could be, could you know? be within your grasp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we look forward to hearing it. Yeah. When it happens. All right. Maybe we'll wind it up there. All right. Thanks so much for coming in and playing playing those new tunes hot off the press. Mm-hmm. Look forward to hearing more. You're listening to Northern Static Podcast with your host, Pete Johnson. And my guest, Nick Fraser. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here, Nick. Uh, thank you, Pete. All right. That's the show, friends. You can find more of Nick's music on his website and generally all over the musical internet. The content and sound quality of the show is the sole responsibility of me, Pete Johnston. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this episode. Most importantly, tell your friends to have a listen and maybe rate and review the show on iTunes. You can find out more about me on SoundCloud, Bandcamp, or on my website, PeteJohnstonMusic.com. For some reason, I'm not on any other social media platform, so I'm counting on you other modern people out there to help spread the word about the show. To close it all out, it would be remiss of me to not play a bit of music that features Nick with his longtime friend, sparring partner, and fellow Ottawa native, the late Justin Haynes. Justin was a masterful guitar player and composer, and he and Nick played a lot of music together over the years before Justin died in 2019. After we finished recording this interview, Nick told me that he should have mentioned how important it was to him growing up in Ottawa to be surrounded by fellow young musicians such as Justin and bassist Jordan O'Connor, who were writing their own music at very young ages. So I'll play things out here with a tune from Owls and Daylight, Nick's first album as a leader with Justin Haynes and saxophonist Quinson Natchoff. This is Holding a Flashlight. Thanks for listening and talk to you again soon.
Mm-hmm. <laughs>